This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. <laughs> Very nice. I thought we'd have a guest host this week. <laughs> What's his name? It's Furret from from Pokemon. Okay. My wife uh, my wife got it for me for a Valentine's present. Just got screen captured. All right, let me actually position myself. Sorry for it. All right. You are not fit to host the bike show. <laughs> um, look, look at that face. How can you not love this face? <laughs> I have to start off really, really seriously. Okay. Um, on our episode, two episodes ago now, we talked about a car wash in Albuquerque. And yes. regrettably, I failed to make a <clears throat> Breaking Bad reference. And I feel really terribly about this because it's been pointed out to me by several people at this point. <laughs> I have already tweeted my disappointment in myself, but I guess some people don't follow me. So I just wanted to make a formal apology for not having made a Breaking Bad reference in that episode. Well, better call Saul's on now. Yeah. You, you will probably get a chance for redemption. <laughs> okay. You'll just have to mention Albuquerque again at some point. We'll get on it. <clears throat> anyway. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. I wanted to talk about monorails today. All right. Let's talk about monorails. They're delightful. Like the the thing in in disney anyway that's great yeah no and i really like the one they've got at the dallas airport yep. it, it helps you get around very quickly i think more cities should have them right and the ones that we encounter as rails applications so a rail a, you'll, you'll hear the term monorail meaning like a big monolithic rails application oh oh yeah. i'm sorry i misunderstood no i don't want to talk about that that, that sounds depressing <laughs> it's not that depressing i want to i want to i want to talk in defense of monorails okay let's talk in defense of monorails so i think i think a lot of people are reading about service-oriented architecture and have been for a few years now and are reacting to things like pe people saying I have like a monolithic rails application is a thing that everybody thinks they have and I guess like if you have one rails application by definition you do have a monolithic sure. rails application but that's not so bad like you can keep everything about a monolithic rails application you can keep in your head right yeah. you get to use things conventionally like active record so that's how you fetch record. That's how you fetch data. You don't go over the network. You just grab it from Active Record. There's all sorts of niceties that you get that as soon as you go to a service-oriented architecture, you're going to lose. And there's more com more complexity that gets pulled into those. Absolutely, it is going to a service-oriented architecture is probably the single easiest way to boost the complexity of your application by an exponential factor. I mean, I think people have misconstrued. Monorail started getting referred to as a thing that can cause you pain when your application and your team is above a certain size in very specific circumstances, and then that's gotten like misconstrued into, oh, this is bad. Right. And and specifically like what I wanted to point out is like if you're having problems in your Rails application and your response is to separate out different services or different applications, it's likely that unless you were having very specific types of problems, all you're going to do is magnify those problems, the, the existing problems you had across several different applications now or several different services. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you had bad code quality problems and you decide like, oh, I want to I isolate this service because I can write new code, 
right? If you have the same people writing the new code that were writing the old code, you're going to have code quality problems in your new thing. If right. you have problems with performance and you're trying to solve them by carving out this one service. And adding an HTTP call, and which, an as HTTP we all know, is fast. Without any idea of like what was really causing you the performance problems in, in the existing app. Like just starting another app or another service in and of itself isn't going to solve anything. Like you have, you're still going to have the same exact problems you had, only now you've got HTTP in the middle and now you've got more repositories and more things to deploy and you know, more, environment, more test environments you need, more staging environments you need. It's so much more complicated. So like my experience on several service-oriented architecture projects here at ThoughtBot and at my last employer, you know, my last employer was enterprise company that had that you know is a software services company and like they needed a service oriented architecture there were you know thousands of developers you can't have thousands of developers working on a single application that's not going to happen um but there are pain points with those and certainly as like the the sizes of companies we work with i feel like i have yet to see the service oriented architecture decision pay off and you know we typically work with either very very early stage startups which we generally would not see the service oriented architecture thing from them but um you know we might see people start to move to that after like year 3 or 4 or something like that so i think part of what makes when the service oriented architecture pays off i think you don't see it because you don't see the service oriented architecture because you're not working on the service oriented architecture you're working on a service and when you have people crossing the service boundaries a lot of the benefits of that segregation go away. Right. I'm the person responsible for all of these decisions anyway, and I have to implement all parts of them anyway. Now I've right. just got to do it in several different apps. And guess what? I still have to deploy everything all at the same time anyway. So like, I haven't gained anything from the deployment aspect because my changes are dependent on each other, or I've got to really bake in these um, backwards compatibility shims that I then pull out in my next release. Exactly. Awesome. As opposed to like if you've got a team of six people working on service A, a team of six people working on service B, a team of six people working on the front end, and like your application is your service. Right, exactly. And that's how it was at my last job at the enterprise company I was speaking of. We had one application, which was our service, and it plugged into this larger customer portal. And 99% of my day was just working on this one application within the confines of the APIs provided to me by other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I had a bug or I wanted to make a change in some service, I might go investigate that code and try and, like, make a suggestion about how that could be handled by this other team. But in general, I was not the one making that change. And they were responsible for providing APIs to not only my team, but to several other teams. Right. Um, and that's where I think something like that worked really well. But if you've got a small team of five, ten developers or whatever, I mean, ten developers is a pretty big team. But well, that's still monorail size, I'd say. Yeah, sure. What's the Netflix... Uh... The, the metric they use, the two pizza metric. <laughs> I don't know. What's that? If you have to order... The maximum size of a team should be the number of people that can be fed by two pizzas. Oh, well, that, that would certainly not... 10, 10 would be over that then. Yeah, what do you got? Yeah. So 16 pieces of pizza, two pieces each, eight, eight people is the max, seven, eight people. Yeah, I'm, I generally eat more than two pieces of pizza, but... Fair. I, I wouldn't break out <laughs> a second team because you have 10 people instead of eight, but okay. like right around that size. Yeah, that's the max for right. sure. Okay. I think on the flip side, uh, I do think having the exercises for upcase, which we internally refer to as whetstone, mm-hmm. uh, and when that was developed, it was a completely separate application. And it's less of a service-oriented architecture. It's literally when you go to the exercises, you are now in a different application, which authenticated with Learn via OAuth, I think. Yeah, I think so. Same with our forums, right? Our forums are a discourse application. Mm-hmm. And the 
certainly the forums, you can see the boundary. I think with whetstone, the boundary is meant to be a little bit more hidden, but you can probably see the boundary if you look hard enough. I see the boundary on it. I mean, I've been doing the Haskell trail there, and I watched Chris's um, Chris Toomey's TMUX trail, um, which was excellent if you're into TMUX. We'll link to those in the show notes. Um, you have to be an upcase, upcase subscriber, but you can you should check it out. What was I saying? Yeah, upcase. I've been doing the upcase trails, and like there are things that if you didn't know they were two applications you'd just be like well this ui is a little weird like what's going on here but because i know they're two applications i know why so like i'm looking at one exercise i can't see what the next exercise or what the previous exercise was because the trails that dictate those live i believe in the upcase application and then the exercise is just host so i can't just say like oh bring me back to the last exercise i was at there's a thing in the top left corner that says like go back to all go back to you know upcase or whatever and I click that, then I'm back on the Upcase homepage, and I have to scroll down to the trail I was on to see, like, oh, this was the previous exercise. Let me see if I have any comments there. So I think that's, that's just a problem with that UI. Mm-hmm. Right. Than... But I think, so I think that there are additional integration points that need to be made in order to do that. And, you know, I haven't looked at the code, so maybe there's not. And maybe uh, Chatter Joe will listen to this and be angry. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I do think overall, though, it, it made a lot of sense for that kind of a segregated and that's Go doing ahead. something totally different i mean it's running a git server and right. um, cloning repositories and things like that so it's not just listing products and offering them for sale um so that did kind of make sense we do have a small team working on that so the team size thing didn't come into play there more just like right. a technical difference well and i, I wouldn't that's i mean this is different than service-oriented architecture right yeah although there is a little piece of that like i was talking to pat brisbane this morning um, him and Joe have been working on a diff parser service. So part of what you do, if you're not familiar with Upcase, is you do these exercises. They come down to you clone you clone a Git repository. You do some work. You make the test pass. You push them back up, and then people review them. And so part of that is it has to parse the, di- the Git diff and display it to you so you can people can comment on it like they do on GitHub. And um, what they're working on right now is splitting out the diff parsing service. So right now the Ruby code is, there's Ruby code inside the Whetstone application that does diff parses. And evidently this is a source of bugs and the code is really difficult to understand. So what Pat and Joe did was they found a library in Haskell that basically already does this and does it very quickly and well. And then they wrote a wrapper around that library basically and separated it out as its own service. And so they'll be introducing that shortly and so that's another kind of reason to break out a dedicated service for something, which is they had a very particular concern about the code in one area, a single responsibility basically, parse this diff, that um, the Ruby code just wasn't cutting it, right? So breaking out another service allows them to make an entirely different tech stack choice that might be more appropriate for that problem. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps, you know, maybe this wasn't the case, I don't think, with diff parsing, but like if we had, if diff parsing was particularly resource heavy, you know, you might be able to make a different tech source, a, a different tech decision that would scale better there. Right. And some of the other reasons, like I, t- I was talking in our, our ThoughtBot chat room before this with people about, you know, what are some reasons that you see people wanting to break apart monorail applications? And scaling was one, like if you have one particular hotspot in your application, you might be able to like break out a service for that, scale that independently from the rest of your application. And then the performance across the entire application improves because you can dedicate hardware where you need it and um, not impact the rest of the application. I've got one that you probably haven't heard. Okay, hit me. I broke out a 
I wouldn't really call it a service, but I broke something out into a gem so that Code Climate would stop yelling me about uh, about security vulnerabilities. <laughs> because this was the code that takes user input and evals it. <laughs> um, tell me more. <laughs> oh, yeah, I should probably justify that statement. Um, so on Marshall Codex, we needed to have the ability for them to describe like the lessons so mm-hmm. how the camera rotates, what part's playing. And of course, if they had infinite time and money, we would have built like this gooey thing with timelines and drag and drop and all of that. But that sounds expensive. So they're semi-technical. So we decided we were going to build a scripting language for it. And rather than building a formal language, I figured just making it a Ruby DSL was a good 80-20 solution. But they had to give us the script somehow. So mm-hmm. I have a compiler object, um, which defines the interface. And it's got some some oddities to it, like the setters don't have equal signs because these scripts are meant to be written by non-Rubyists. Um, I defined a, a method called pi because math colon colon capital P capital I doesn't make as much sense as just pi in this in this domain. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so we in, we instance eval it, but which they have a, you know it's, they've got, they've only got access to the instance methods of the thing that that that's being instance evaled against. But I can't stop them from referencing a constant. So you were getting code climate warnings about this because you are evaluating right. user input. And yes, so it's dangerous. So so you broke out a gem for it rather than just telling code climate ignore this? <laughs> no, I I wanted to break out a gem anyway, but that was a just nice little benefit. It was a very isolated thing that just felt good to not have in the main code base. Right. And breaking out a gem like the apps that I'm working on right now, there's a lot of duplicated code, so what we've started to do is break out gems so that they can share these. Mm-hmm. But I think that in and of itself, like that's better because we won't be duplicating the code, but that in and of itself is probably an indication that the service or application boundaries are wrong, right? Because yes. there's code, they both need it. It's, you know, relatively domain specific, but we had to break out a gem because now multiple multiple applications need to share this because they both have the same concern. I think there is a certain amount of duplication, which is acceptable, especially if it's like of the utils type uh, type of code where it's just it may or may it may be semi-domain specific but it's more of like a helper method of some kind yeah that's fair you're always gonna have a little bit of it right i mean the same way we have a little bit of code that's more or less duplicated across every rails app ever right okay i think pulling out gems might be like another typical reason you might go to services is like with things we hear anyway are like i can't this thing, this application is doing a lot, and I can't keep it all in my head, so I'm going to split it out into several different applications. But if you can instead split out some of the things it's doing into gems that don't have to be applications, and you can just be dependencies of your application. Right. So, like, you can look at that as, like, if the gem works, you don't care about it, right? You're just like, it works, it does its thing. I don't need to test it. I don't need to know about it. I just know, you know, it takes user input and does the scripting thing that you were talking about, right? Right. Well, and then I can, if I, if I want to, I can go break that out into a third-party service. Like, I don't have to know or care if, when I call the method on the gem, if that's actually running Ruby code or if it's just making an HTTP call to another server. Right. So so I think that breaking out gems might help if that's your concern, right? Rather mm-hmm. than Rather than breaking out an application, what about a gem kind of thing? Other things that people brought up were some dependencies you really do want to isolate the rest of your application from. And if you have a single Ruby process that's running, you can't have different batches of dependencies, right? You have to have, right. you have to satisfy that dependency graph completely. I haven't run into this myself, but I'm sure that it exists on particularly traffic-heavy sites that have can have some pretty uh, heinous dependencies in parts. Yeah. So we're now, we're, you know, we're going to get hate mail from from Node people now. 
because they get because they don't have they can their dependencies can have their own versions of dependencies. Is that what you're talking right. about? Yeah, which yeah. is still not a solution to the problem because as soon as dependency A leaks out through dependency B and you then try to pass that object to dependency C, which also uses A, but A is a different version, and the breaking change between those versions was the object that is being shared between B and C, <laughs> then everything just blows up. We could do I feel I feel like we could we could both do a show on package management. <laughs> particularly yeah. particularly um NPM. Oh, I could definitely do a show that's just hating on NPM. <laughs> Sorry, NPM. But yeah, anyway, I just wanted I just wanted to to let people know that like keep your monorails. Love your monorails. They're fun. Kids love driving them. <laughs> Good time. <laughs> uh, it, we had like the situation we're in now in this current client is basically we've all started to come to the rep- re- realization that they went too far with these services and we've got to collapse them. And the conversation was like, okay, well, wh- how many do we collapse? And I don't think this is like a finalized solution by any means, but most people seem to think, well, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, that, that seems fair. Like, we've taken this thing, like in our particular case, like we've got, um, you know, the services didn't, like I said, there's a lot of shared concerns amongst the services. So they talk to each other a lot, which has performance problems. Then the clients are not, there are no like dedicated client gems for these services. They're all just, you know, they make Faraday calls and then the result is wrapped in a hashy. So oh, in a hashy yeah. mash, which um, Richard Schneeman wrote an article that basically summarizes all the problems with hashy mashes, which we'll link to uh, in the show notes, which will be bikeshed.fm slash nine. I think nine, right? Yep. Uh, we should check that before the outro. Okay, (laughs) seems reasonable. Um, I think nine is right. I think I'd know if it were ten. I feel like a celebration. Anyway, um, yeah. So they were all wrapped in hashy mashes, which is just a terrible API to be dealing with when you get down to the layer of like the view, and you're like, what's available to me here? What methods do I call? Uh, Because whatever you call is going to return just fine for you. It's just going to give you nil. Or, you know, it'll give you data if there happened to be something in that key. Um, yeah. So if you're not prepared to write dedicated clients for these things, then don't do it. Um, you know, I don't know. Just don't rush to breaking up your monorail is what I want to say. I second that. Okay. 100% wholeheartedly. Great. Good talk. You know, you know uh, the, the, the other question that breaking something into a gem answers for you, though. Okay. Where do I put my code? <laughs> right, you put it in the gem. You put it in. You put it in lib, and you structure it based on the name of the classes, mm-hmm. like Matt's intended. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, do you want to talk about your uh, attributes API? Yeah, so we are um, trying to wrap up all of the final issues that that uh, David has with it because he basically needs to approve any any new public uh, user facing API. And um, there were a couple of sticking points. Some of them were minor, like I had methods called uh, typecast from user, typecast from database, typecast for database. Those are getting changed to cast, serialize, and deserialize, which is fair and actually solves a problem I've been having of like, I want to move this up to active model. What the hell do I do with all of this database stuff? Yeah. And so now it's just generic enough. And then, but the main one was um, the API looked like attribute the attribute name and then a type object and he wanted symbols instead of the object instead of the object which i can kind of i can kind of see in certain cases especially with the um like quote-unquote basic types like string yeah i can kind of see what you know 
doing type colon colon string dot new versus just the symbol string, sure. So I made it so that anything, any type that was provided by the database adapter, could, you could use a symbol instead of a type object. And then if you want to provide your own types, you just pass the type object instead of the symbol. And then that became a sticking point again. And so there were, there, you know, there were arguments along the lines of let's give the users the same power that we have. I kind of disagree with that. We are giving them that same power. They just pass an object instead of a symbol. I don't see why the power to pass a symbol is that important. But then it got into like what is important to Rails. And um, this is a place that I feel like I fundamentally disagree with David in particular, and I'm sure there's others on the core team who, who agree with him, um, which is the difference between beauty, as, as he puts it, and readability. And so, yeah, I think if you have a symbol instead of a thing.new, Mm-hmm. That's prettier, but it's less readable, and it's especially less readable when there's constructor arguments. And that's the example, all of the exa- code examples I, I was giving. I tro- always tried to have places where you'd want to give constructor arguments to your type. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, if you had a money type, you might want to pass conversion rates to it in the constructor. Uh, and so now it's like we've got this registry, and you'll register your stuff in an initializer, and you'll reference it by a symbol. And then we've got to get the constructor argument over there somehow, and I mean, I'm, and I'm going to splat them probably is what I'll do. But now I'm looking at this. Where did money come from? What is all of this other stuff? Where, how is that getting past the constructor? Because that's now implicit. And it's a lot harder to grep for. And I think it's very important. I think grepability is very important when you're the one providing the code. It's one thing for us to give symbols because, like, yeah, you, you read the docs. You learn what, what Rails provides for you. But when you start getting into, like, I don't know where this thing came from, but I'm the one providing it, or my my code base is the one providing it. Um, I think that makes just looking at the code much more confusing. It takes a lot longer to figure out, and it stopped being a thing that was apparent what it's doing, and starts just being yet another thing that Rails does, where we have this really magic API that you just have to know. And knowing Ruby code isn't enough to understand how it works. Right. So with the type registry, that so so now in an initializer, you'll have a you'll be able to say like active record. Type dot register type dot register money and then you tell it like that corresponds to this class you know right. my my money or whatever. Yeah. So now when you go to use that code, you'll just see a symbol called colon money, right? You know, symbol called yeah. money, um, and you have to know that that is a registered type, and you have to go find where those types are registered and see like okay, it corresponds to this class. Right, and you have to, and then you have to know like that there is a registry and what yep. file it's in, and yep. you have to know it's probably in an initializer, um, you know, things like that. So what I'm probably going to do is, at the very least, generate an initializer um, in like just every application, so that you know the file that it's in. Right. But yeah, I think it's just one of this, these cases where we are trading off being able to know what code is doing, so that it looks prettier. I think that attitude is ultimately very harmful to the framework. Right, and it and it goes against what we had talked about before, which was leave the business logic to things you can call new on, right? Right. So now Rails is calling new on this thing for you. Or yeah. maybe, you know, I guess maybe you could call new, but then it, yeah, yeah, basically Rails is calling new for you now on this thing. So it's another kind of magical thing that's happening versus, you know, something that's very, exp- uh, not very explicit, because there's still like this magic of what is this attributes API kind of thing going on, but... I mean, it's not magic. You have to know about it, I guess. But right, um, but it's a lot. It's a lot more obvious when you're providing the type explicitly. Right. So yeah, I definitely liked the the form where, you know, you provided the type inline right there. And that form will always be there. But that's um, that's what I was going to ask. Can I still do that? 
Yes, and well, you have to because I rely on the ability to do that internally. So, so the documentation will just say use this type registry, but right. you're, you're free to just not use the type registry. Right, and it's also like now I also feel like I have to hash out every possible addition I'm ever going to make to this API, such as like decorators, composers, stuff like that. I, I was very comfortable shipping it early before because any additions are just going to pass a different type object, whereas now decorators will probably be like a keyword argument and take an array of symbols of some kind. So I got to make sure I don't code myself into a corner on the API. Right. And decorating would have been simple before because you just inline it. Right. And then there's a separate internal API where if you don't so like serialized, for example, is, a, is an example of a decorator, and we don't know the type of the column underneath it. So there's another API where you pass basically a block. That block will be given the original type at the point where we know it, and then you return a new type from that block. Um, that one was not intended to be public yet. But, and then, of course, if, you just, if, you, if you're providing the underlying type as well, you just do decorator.new, other type.new, and no problem. All right. Well, so it sounds like the, the API that we both like will still be there. And we'll just have to try and do what we can to publicize that part of the API over the part that will be in the existing in the documentation. Although, like, you could also can you can you document both ways to do it, or what, how's this going to work? Uh, I don't know if it's even going to get through if I try to document it both ways. Okay. I don't know. You know, I think a lot when I'm working on this stuff about the the Turing students, and it's just like. It is, it, there is legitimately a, an upper boundary to the number of DSLs that we can reasonably expect you to have to memorize everything about. I saw a thread on the Rails subreddit. Oh, oh crap. Did you just unplug your microphone? Um, if you can still hear me. Nope, you're very echoey. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Hold on. Oh, me... There you go. Okay, cool. Did, did Sorry. You, did you unplug the microphone or something? I unplugged the microphone. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So DSLs, Turing students. Right. No, I saw this thread on Reddit this weekend from a person who got really excited learning Ruby and really enjoyed the language, hadn't done programming before, and tried to dive into Rails and got so disheartened that he almost like, he, it sounded like he was thinking about not continuing to try to be a programmer because he didn't understand what anything was doing because you like knowing Ruby is not sufficient to look at any code in Rails and have even the slightest understanding of what's happening. Yeah, and some of that's not to DSL, right? Some of that is, I guess, I guess, like at least on an active record model, you see that, like, oh, this thing inherits from active record base. That's probably doing something. What's it right. doing? And, and you know how method dispatch works. Right. And you know how super works. Right. Um, after create, not so much. So, yeah. So I was going to say after create, I guess, is, is kind of DSL-y. All those class level, not really macros, but whatever. I guess everybody Close calls them macros. Have, yeah. right? All those types of things. The route, The routes, I guess, are... Right. another dsl that you're gonna have to come up against and we've talked about that before like where i feel like a lot of people don't even realize you can just write ruby in there like you can have conditional right. statements you can have you can pull in things from the environment you can do whatever you need to do there well and and i mean you can get yourself into the same boat with you know list macros like this is not a unique problem to, to ruby i mean it's more of a pro- problem with metaprogramming in general mm-hmm. i think code climate even like lowers your score if you have too many 
statements that are not inside of a method definite uh, that are not inside of a method body. Yes, it definitely does. Yep, I've seen that. Just like the message that's like too much metaprogramming can be incredibly confusing to uh, people who are unfamiliar with your code base. It makes it much harder to understand what's going on, even if it looks prettier. Yeah. Well, as long as we'll still have the 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 good way to do it, I guess I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> Although yeah, I'm, like, I'm I'm thinking about this now, and like if I weren't listening or more accurately doing this podcast when this attributes api comes out i'm going to look up the documentation i'm going to go okay the first thing i have to do is register this type give it a symbol move over here and in reality that's not really that big a deal like i would remember that but i can see that you know you might not or like if it's the first time you're encountering it you're clearly going to be confused right well it's like how you know how often do you have to go look up the docs for, say, has many, um, other than like the very simplest case, or uh, look up the docs for callbacks, or look up the docs for before filters? Serialize actually is a really good one. I can't I, like every time I ever see that, I have to go look at the documentation and figure out what it's doing. Um, the other thing that people forget is that you can open a file and you just have this declaration there. And if you're not, of course, if you're not familiar with the API at all, you're going to have to go look at the docs. But it's also a question of if you've seen it before but have a limited memory capacity like I do, how apparent it's going to be immediately from looking at it, knowing that it creates, you know, knowing that it creates a reader and writer and, and whatnot with a type. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, and, and maybe I'm just, you know, overreacting, but it just feels like it's, you know, it, it actually feels a lot like Spring, the Java frameworks, like inversion of control containers. Yeah, and, I was going to say, like, you snuck in an inversion of control container here. <laughs> Yeah, and we're just shoving all of the, like, rather than doing the ugly stuff, we're just shoving it into a config file, which if it were Java would have been an XML. Right, and now it's an initializer. Yeah, which is just, like, it's still there. It's just in this, like, we're just shoving the problem under the carpet. Can I tweak that thing at runtime? Probably. So I could change out the dependencies now. I can change out my attribute underlying attribute classes at runtime. Which, awesome. I mean, it, not at runtime, but that may... I could see maybe that proves useful in tests. I don't but think that, 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 probably not. Just, but. That that takes my point even further. Of like, I don't know how this is working anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I like it, it, it. Just skyrockets the complexity. Right. Whereas if if you've got a class name, well, okay. So we're about to say something about how like a hard coded class name is easier to follow, and this is definitely true. But we do also, I think, both like dependency injection. So. Is this all bad? Like, now that you've got this type registry where you're basically injecting the dependency that corresponds to the symbol? So the, the, this is ultimately built on composition, right? You give us a type object. Right. Um, there is an abstract class that you can inherit from because it gives some convenience methods. I've been actually just trying to prune the interface down to hopefully just three methods so that it's perfectly reasonable to have it inherit from nothing. This is no different than if you were to use some form of dependency injection to figure out your superclass or what module to include. Mm-hmm. Like I think when you're when you're defining class, I think yeah, at that point you you hard code your constants. Okay, but can't do anything about it. So uh, I'm <laughs> finishing up the registry, trying to make sure there aren't any edge cases that I haven't considered. And oh, and then also the other thing that started coming up a lot was um, like. We have support for a lot of PostgreSQL primitives that aren't supported on other adapters. Mm-hmm. And, and like it came just shy of saying that we have to, anything that any adapter provides, we have to provide a version of that for every adapter, even though there is no, like our money type on Postgres is not 
something you would want to use if you were the kind of person who wanted real money types in your in in your system. You would use it if you wanted to work with PostgreSQL money primitives so you could query against it. Right. And anyway, so now we have to deal with like namespace collisions and make sure that if you try and register your own money type and if you're not on PostgreSQL, sure, that's fine. But if you are on PostgreSQL, we inform you that you are sh- shadowing a native database type and that will potentially cause unexpected behavior in your application. And then we have to have, you know, do you override it? Do you not uh, override it? If you're making a gem, we have to have a way for you to register it so that it like if you're polyfilling for MySQL or something like that, so that you say, you know, here's this type under this name. But if another, if the database adapter provides one, you know, don't use my type. Hmm. And just all, you know, complications like that. Okay, I see how your next month is going to be spent. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it'll it's, be interesting when people get their hands on it too, right? Like, we're nowhere near a beta, right, for no, this? No, no not so. at all. I mean, you can totally... If you're just doing some, per- don't do this in production or on any app people are paying you money for. But if you're just, to- you know, have a toy thing that you're playing with, you can point a master. That that yeah. should be fine. Okay. Um, your gems might not work. <laughs> <laughs> right. SAS Rails isn't going to work. No, I have no idea. It just doesn't never works. But <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. It just gets disheartening. Fundamentally disagreeing with the rest of the team sometimes. Hey, I thought of one more thing that I would wholeheartedly sign off on if you were going to extract a service. Okay. Not to, to jump back for a second. If you are extracting a service that is going to allow you to isolate yourself entirely from some existing code, like so it so like if you're extracting, you know, you might have a kind of a static e content management part of your website mm-hmm. that doesn't interface at all with any of the dynamic stuff you're doing. So if you can extract something for that, that in particular, if you can extract something that totally takes a maintenance burden off of your off of your plate, right? If you can extract a service that's hosted or, or something like that, like you're going to use hosted WordPress for that now, and you're just going to have to write some styles and make it look like the rest of the website. If you can do something like that, or even if you're like, you know, like I'm going to extract this thing. It's it, I can't use WordPress. So I have to use this custom whatever, and I'm going to extract this Rails application once. And I'm likely never going to have to touch it. And these two applications are not going to have to talk to each other. Then great. That's, that seems like a slam dunk to me. So that Absolutely. was one more thing that kind of uh, we were discussing this actually in the upcase forums with uh, somebody who was considering uh, breaking up their application. So that was one thing that came up. What else? Anything else? We're not going to record again for a while. No, we aren't. I guess well, I'll just have to like call you on Skype while I'm, on, while I'm in Arizona just to like you know, hear your beautiful voice again. <laughs> Going once? I plugged the microphone again. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and I'm back. Kind of. Kind of. Okay, that's better. Should we wrap up, I guess? Yeah, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash nine. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you again next time. Bye.